we're going to continue to worship uh, through studying God's word together and, and just considering things that it has, like the kids are going to do as well. So, all right, so we're going to continue this morning in a, a three-week series we're doing called uh, Living Rich. And we started this series last week, and, and maybe some of you thought, oh, good, it's over, and now we can move on to other things. But we're going to spend a few weeks talking about it because I, I think it's, uh, it's worth spending time on. We asked a question last week. We said, what would it take for you to feel like you're living rich. That's what we asked last week. Like, who is the richest anyway? And what would it take to feel like you're living rich? And it seems like a, a worthy uh, question, but it's really not the point, because the point isn't who's rich and who's not. The point, I guess, of the whole series is this. What, would it, what changes could we make in our life that would cause us to live rich? Like, what could we actually do right now without any changes whatsoever in your life? And you might say, well, Bill, there's nothing I could do right now. But I don't think that that's what the Bible teaches. I think that there are things we do right now that could cause us to live in a way that we can live rich, no matter what our situation is. A little bit of uh, background and why I, I, I believe it's because the Bible says it's true. But, you know, I'm, uh, I serve on the Highland Area Christian Service Ministry Board, and we, we distribute food to people who are in need right, in our community. Um, there's actually food collection in the back of the worship space that we take over there when we go and serve about once a month. And many of those folks would say, well, I, I have nothing to give and nothing to do. And I, I don't think that that's fundamentally true. I think even our clients at the food pantry could live rich. I think it's a biblical model that all of us can follow. But the question is, what are those things? And what would we, what would we have to change in our life in order to begin to live rich? That's the question. The series we're going to talk about money, um, how we relate to money, which is really the core issue there's a relationship that we have with, with money and, and stuff. I'll include stuff in there. It's not just about greenbacks, right? And most importantly, why it matters to Jesus. Because he spent a lot of time talking in the Gospels to his disciples about the issue of money. And lots of religious people came to him and asked him questions about money. And so we can, we can talk about that. Today's focus, so last week was the richest. Who's the richest? What's it mean to be rich anyway? And we talked about the miracle of salvation which is only available through Jesus Christ. We are the richest. If you know Christ as Savior, you are the richest. That's us. But then there's a practical thing that really, in our culture, we're one of the richest cultures in the world. You could travel and see this easily. Many of us have taken mission trips where we see that very thing. But today we want to talk about how generosity ultimately defines our relationship with both God and money. Right? So I just want you to think about that for a minute. How generosity ultimately defines our relationship with both God and money. I asked last week, uh, we talked about maybe integrating uh, readers into uh, services, um, but we haven't had anyone volunteer yet. So if you want to be a, a reader occasionally, not every Sunday, but sometimes on Sundays, uh, let, let someone know. We would love to have you do that. We're going to go ahead and we're going to read. I'm going to read for us this morning, and we're going to read from Luke uh, chapter 12, 13 through 21. I'll give you something either page 727, if you use one of the Bibles at the end of the chair rows. This is what the word says. Someone in the crowd said to Jesus, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And Jesus replied, man, who appointed me judge or an arbiter between you? And then he said to them, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told him this parable. The ground of a certain rich man produced a good crop. He thought to himself, 
what should I do? I have no place to store my crops. And then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and I'll build bigger ones. And there I will store my grain and my goods. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded of you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself but is not rich toward God. What we do after the reading of Scripture, what we always do is pray. We're going to pray for his inspiration as we talk about his word today. Um, God, we thank you so much for a chance to be in your house, gathered as your people, uh, to worship you, to give you glory and praise, because you alone are worthy of glory and praise. We thank you for the day that you've made. We thank you for the lives you've breathed into our lungs. We thank you for the chance to share a space now and to worship you here. We ask that you would be our teacher, that the promise that Jesus made to his disciples is that the counselor, the teacher, the spirit will come and, and teach us in our hearts. Write your word upon our hearts this morning. Lord, this is work that only you can do. We're not seeking man's wisdom. We're not seeking some concocted solution. Instead, Father, we want to learn from you. Would you teach us in this most intimate of places what you're calling us to do, how you're calling us to live in this life, and therefore the life to come? May you be glorified by the proclamation of your word. May your name be held in high esteem amongst all your people, indeed the people of the world. We pray that this work begins this morning in our hearts, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So it's kind of an interesting story about this guy who's concerned about inheritance, but I wanted to kind of lay a bit of groundwork for why we're discussing this to begin with. Many of you have heard the saying, money is the root of all evil, right? Who's heard that saying, money is the root of all evil? Some of you have heard it, maybe. Many have said, well, that uh, that's a, a misquoting, and so I, I want to actually share scripture with you, but there's a, a principles that uh, are here. I'm going to go backwards. I have my slides a lot of order. This is actually from 1 Timothy uh, chapter 6, verse 10. You don't have to turn there. You can if you want to, of course, but you don't have to. 1 Timothy 6, uh, 10, and, and it lays out kind of a principle, and here's what it's, the word says. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, right? That's the overarching principle. By the way, it's important to understand about the book of Timothy that this is Paul writing to a young protege, a young pastor, about how to be a man of God or how to be a godly person, right? If you want to lead a godly life, if you want to do godly things, these are some principles you should follow. And it was written to Timothy, he calls him my own son, right? My son in the faith. So it's a really uh, important teaching. And so we have in this, I'm going to try to find my spot here, yeah, so so we know this little quote. As a matter of fact, that all is verse uh, 10. Some people, it goes on, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs, which means that there's great danger in not handling financing, finances well. If you literally read what Paul wrote in 1 Timothy 6, 10, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. We all know that, whether we're misquoting it or not. But some people, Paul's confession is, eager for money, that's their desire, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Like, it kind of reminds me of someone who's like, goes out into a minefield and mines start going off. They don't know what's happening and things are just going wrong in their life. And these aren't just any old people, but it's, it's people that Paul would know. What's he teaching Timothy in this passage? It comes in verse 6. Godliness with contentment is great gain. 
Paul actually breaks it down like this. If I have clothes to wear and a place to live, I'm satisfied. And, and you can go, oh, well, that's for Paul. You know, Paul, he just wants clothes to live in a roof to have over his head. Paul's like, that's because godliness with contentment is a great gain. You see, Paul's trying to do for Timothy. He's kind of warning him about things that are coming. But he's trying to kind of lay this groundwork of like, this can be a big deal in your life, Timothy. And many people have wanted from the faith. There's not just like those people out there, but like, you know, people in here have wandered away because they're more interested in, in money. By the way, I, I, I share this message with you this morning, uh, not as an expert in anything, but as a wanderer myself, you know, as someone who senses in my own heart that, that, that weirdness, that weirdness. Uh, we're going to talk more about this stuff later, but some of the greatest tensions in our household will come in conversations about finances, whether it's how bills are being paid, whether it's about how much is being earned, whether it's about any, they're just, everyone gets really uptight. It just happens in here. Maybe not in your house. Maybe just in my house. <laughs> but, but, you know, Paul's teaching Timothy, this is a big deal. Godliness with contentment is great gain. So what, what would it mean to be content in a godly way? What would it mean to be satisfied? Now, see, that's a, that's a core issue of our life in Christ. That's a fundamental, real, uh, on-the-ground issue. And so now we're going to um, spend uh, some time talking about this interesting encounter Jesus had with this man seeking an inheritance. Um, I do want to say one more thing, by the way. The, I was curious about the word, uh, the love of money. I was curious whenever I found out that that's the love of money is one word in the Greek, uh, um, which, you know, I don't know, I just, that, freak, that, that trips me out when I see something like that. I'm like, wait, what's that mean? And um, I'm not going to be able to say this right, but it's, Philagria, and you've heard of Philadelphia, right? Love of brothers. Philagria, it literally means love of silver. And the teaching that Paul's writing to Timothy is like, the love of silver, here it is again, is the root of what? All kinds, all, all different ways of evil, right? So he's just saying there's great danger in it. The uh, Philagria, the love of silver. As a matter of fact, um, we see this in our culture a lot with class warfare, we see this um, from the time we're in, like, school together. Why does that kid have cool shoes and I don't have cool shoes? That's, that's some form of filigree, you know? Um, why do they have, they live over there. We talked last week about the richest and who are the richest and how we look at them. And I even confessed many of my own failings and how I look at people who have great wealth. What does it look like? Well, then here we have this uh, encounter that happens in, in Luke 12. Now, we're going to spend time in Luke 12, so hopefully you kept your finger there because that's where we're going to hang out. I'll put it up one more time just so that if you want to um, find it again, if you turned away. But Luke, so Luke 12, we have this encounter with Jesus. And I want to start with the parable that he tells. And I'm just going to read in verse 16. Uh, Jesus taught them a parable. It means he's trying to teach them an overarching principle. And, and um, so this is what he says. The ground of a certain rich man produced a good crop or an abundant harvest, right? Um, he thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. I want you to see, much like um, last week, the guy had a, a, good, a good problem to have. I've done all these things, right? Um, and he had a, a lot of wealth. Uh, um, this guy has a good problem. He has had an abundant yield of harvest. There's nothing wrong with that. It's, it's interesting when we, when we think like the filigree is a problem of the gria, of, of, the, of, the gold, of the gold or silver, right? We think that's the problem. But it's more the philos of it, the loving of it that's problematic. He tells a story about one who has a, a certain rich man who has a, an abundant crop. He, he's been blessed. 
Um, as a matter of fact, if you see his problem, this is a good problem to have. He has so many crops, he has no place to store them. He's completely out of room, right? I mean, if, if he had a business plan, it was, if I can get to 100% capacity, it would be amazing. And maybe he's running 60 or 70%. And all of a sudden this year, he has like 120%. He has nowhere to go with this stuff. It's worth noting here, by the way, that if you read the text, it says that the abundance of crops was produced by the ground. So many of us will go, well, he worked hard for his abundance of crops. Well, I get it. Yeah, I bet he did work hard. I bet he managed to farm well. I bet he did a lot of smart stuff. But the ground produced the crop. One of the greatest things I think that we've lost in culture is this sense of where our, our stuff comes from. This is manifest in many ways, really, but you think we live in a rural community, so you can still see the planting happening. You can still see the harvest. And if you go to small cafes, you can still hear farmers complain about rain or lack of rain. <laughs> you know? if, you, if you listen, it's still around us. But for many people, and maybe many of us, we have no sense of that dependency on God or that it really is a blessing to have a good crop. We, we begin to become more efficient and we begin to um, control things ourselves. As a matter of fact, my grandfather was a farmer and all the area that he used to pray for rain over now has these huge rain rigs just run across the fields all the time. You know, they're just water rigs. But here, the ground has produced the crop and this is a biblical principle that it's been a great blessing and he has a problem. His barns are literally overflowing with abundance. So he has a solution. Let's see what his solution is. Verse 18. Then he said this. Oh, this is what I'll do. It's like an epiphany. <laughs> ah, I will tear down my barns, and I'll build bigger barns. And there I will store all my grain and all my goods. Right? And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. There's a lot we can talk about in there, right? But I would say, this seems like a reasonable solution. Your barns aren't big enough anymore? Build bigger barns. <laughs> you know? Like, it's an absolutely reasonable solution. If you think it's not reasonable, then just drive around our neighborhoods. We just build bigger barns. That's all we do. We, we never think about the abundance that's been given to us. Um, and so it's a totally reasonable solution. Aha, this is, and, and I tell you what, and we know the story continues, but if it ended there, we would go like, awesome, there's the plan. Bigger, better, faster, more awesome. That's what we're going to do forever and ever. That's the increase. That's the Lord's blessing. And so here's the solution. I'm going to tear him down. Now, we can, we're going to walk through a few little details. We're not going to be too mean to this dude here because I think it's a reasonable solution, what he comes up with. He says he's going to build, and there he's going to store up all my grain. Mm, look at the words, and all my goods. It's everything that's his. Because clearly, clearly, church, if God blessed this man, he wanted this man to be abundantly wealthy. Clearly. If God caused his crops to grow and the other crops didn't grow, it's clear that God wanted him to have so much stuff for himself to him. See, it's my crops. It's my goods. And I'm going to store them. Wait, for what? In verse 19, for myself. Because I'll say to myself, you have plenty of good things. See, here's where it really gets twisted up. You have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Man, you've made it. 
I mean, how many of you want to hit the lottery? Oh, baby, if I hit the lottery, I have it made. <laughs> you know? And, and people always ask, what are you going to do? And, you know, or what are you doing? Or people go and get a job and get paid really, really well. What's the first thing you do? I'm going to buy everybody I know a house. <laughs> you know, like that's benevolence. I've got it made. I can do so much. Many years. And then he says, I'm going to take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. Which, again, it seems reasonable. He's made it. He hit the jackpot here. And he has this reality uh, that he's now dealing with. He has too much stuff, too much grain, too many goods. Uh, and he's just going to live in it, man. He's going to enjoy it. He's earned it. It's his. And I'm telling you, if the story of David, like, that's that, right? This is, I just want to remind us, this is Jesus teaching people. Jesus says these words in 20, but God said. Now, usually when it says, but God said, it's a great thing in the Bible, you know? It's like, you're lost in your sin, but God said, right? Uh, you, know, you, 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 you have no way forward, but God can. You know, this, I can do all things. But this is a rebuke. But God said to that man, in Jesus' parable, you fool. What? You fool. Why is he a fool? He has... There's nothing wrong with the problem he has. God is not absent in the abundance. He's not sleeping on the job. He didn't accidentally let this guy get all this stuff. He's a fool. The next sentence says, why? Because this very night, your life will be demanded of you. How presumptuous. If you, if you think about the text, the issue is this. The man has gone from a heart of sustenance in, in, to a... a to believing his stuff is going to provide for him. That's what it is. My, I got it made. Have you ever heard anybody say that? Man, I got it made now. I did it. I broke through. And, and they're revealing, I should say, we are revealing something in our heart that presumes upon what's ultimately important in life. We don't have to worry anymore. We can take life easy. We can eat, drink, and be merry. I find it interesting that this eat, drink, and be merry idea was something that was discussed in the book of Ecclesiastes. When Solomon's teaching and he says, hey, if this is all there is, you may as well eat, drink, and be merry. But there's a if this is all there is attached to that. The opposite is that. If this is not all there is, you ought not just eat, drink, and be merry. Got plenty of things laid up for many years. And God says, you fool. What? Your life, that's your, your very being, will be demanded from you tonight. This very night, your life will be demanded of you. And then Jesus asks him, or the, God asks this guy a question. Who will get all that you've prepared for yourself? What benefit has it been to you? What benefit has it been to you? It's, it's not a bad problem. There's nothing wrong with that. It's not the abundance of wealth that's the problem. It's the solution that this is all for me, that this is what God's intentions are. And, and, and he, he says, your life's me demanded. And I'm like, wait, what? You talk about a roller coaster day, that's about as extreme as you can get. I got it made. Oh no, I'm doomed. This whole parable that's taught starts with this conversation with one guy. 
But I want to make a point before we move to that part of the text. If you read in the context, Jesus is teaching many thousands of people this parable. When it says, and he told them this parable, it's not that guy that came to ask the question. He's gonna, he dealt with that guy, and we're going to talk about that, well, how he deals with that guy right now. But he's teaching the crowds this truth. That there's a presumption not in this one man's heart, but in all of our hearts. That the application is not for those people out there or that dude right there, but all of us. To ask questions like, what are we counting on? How do we use the things that God has given to us? What is God's intended purpose for his blessing? Don't assume those things. That's dangerous. Too many do. Too many of us do. So it all started with this one guy, so let's look at that. Look with me at, at verse 13. Someone in the crowd came to Jesus and said, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Now, I just, we've seen Jesus approach with a whole bunch of stuff. <laughs> you know, I can't walk. I, my hand doesn't work. I can't see. My daughter's dead. <laughs> you know, people are bringing some urgent cares to Jesus. And in the middle of these requests, some dude shows up and he's like, tell my brother to share. That's what he says, right? T tell him to give me my inheritance, to share the inheritance. Which, again, I don't know if you're like me, church, but I would say um, that's reasonable. We live in a culture of fairness. I want what's coming to me. I want my portion. But this dude wants it so much. Now, I just got to think, if he had a do-over on questions, I think he'd want a do-over. Because I wouldn't want the question that I asked Jesus, tell somebody to share with me. What a wasted opportunity with Jesus Christ. But that's what he asked. Tell my brother to divide. And now we're going to talk about some principles here that I think come out of this teaching that Jesus does before the parable. There's these principles that Jesus lays down like bam, 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 right in a row that just absolutely are instructive about who he is and what we should be worried about in this life. And the first is this. When he answers, he says this. Man, who appointed me a judge or arbiter between you? Right? That's in verse 14. Man, who appointed me a judge or arbiter between you? There's a couple ways you can read that. Like Jesus saying, I'm not a judge or arbiter between you, right? But it's, it seems to me that Jesus is going, why are you bothering me with this, right? Like, this is below my pay grade. This is not on my list of things to worry about today. He, he, he kind of rebukes him, and Jesus says, basically, Jesus has more important things to worry about than money. Now, this isn't just here. Remember, other times people come up, Peter's like, Jesus, what are we going to do? We've got to pay this tax. And he, she's like, I ain't worried about money. Catch a fish. And there was money in the fish's mouth. Like, Jesus is not worried about money. And he says, why? Who appointed me judge or arbiter between you? But then, look what the word says. He said to them. This is when he begins teaching the crowds. So that's all he says. Man, who appointed me arbiter between you? But this is what he teaches next. Look out. Be on your guard against all kind of greed. The word there is covetedness. Be concerned. And Jesus says he is concerned about all kinds of covetedness. What he heard in the question was not someone wanting their fair share. What he heard in the question was someone believing that something that someone else had should have been rightly given to them. That's what he heard. It's in verse, you understand the difference, right? Like, 
He didn't hear, this ain't fair. He heard, you're worried about stuff that doesn't belong to you. Be on guard against all kinds of covetousness. Watch yourself. This is a principle that Jesus believes is important. He is concerned about greed, and he says that we should be concerned about greed. Me and you. It ought to be part of our normal spiritual life to concern ourselves with greediness. Be on your guard. That's not a passive conversation. That's an active thing. And look at what he teaches. All kinds. It's not like this one thing, this one inheritance issue, don't want your rightful inheritance. He's teaching this idea. There's all kinds of ways to be covetedness, or to have covetedness, or all kinds of ways to covet other people's things, their life, their property, their possessions, their wealth, their job. I mean, whatever it is, he's like, be on your guard against it. What's the next principle, though? Why would he say that? I love this. He says, and man, if you can hang your head on something, hang your head on this. Because this ought to encourage all of us. A person's life does not consist in the abundance of what he has. Hear it again. A person's life does not consist of the abundance of his possessions. That is an, an antithetical cultural teaching for us. And it was for them too right? Remember last week, the disciples freak out. If the rich man can't be saved, who can be saved? Because they clearly got an advantage in this life. No, your life, there's two principles that apply to this. First, your life is more than what you own. Your life is more than what you own. Talk about this in two different ways. The one way is the obvious, right? If you had a bunch of stuff, don't think that's your life. It's not your life. You got a cool car. It's not your life. Your life is more than that. Then you flip the script to people who think they have nothing. They don't think they're valuable. You say, no. Your life is more than what you own. So this is across all stripes of people, right? We're not teaching against the wealthy or, or teaching for the poor. We're saying that the truth is that our lives are more than what we possess. Maybe you're like me, and right now you got that thing in your heart, and you're like, oh, man, just let it stop. Don't, let's don't talk about this anymore. That's because in some way we're believing that. I've made it. There's great danger in it to think that we've done something, that, that this, is, this is what life is about. Or, God forbid, that a life of abundance is proof of the blessing of God. That's dangerous. Because that's antithetical to the biblical narrative that God is an advocate for the poor. He believes in those who have nothing. There's this sameness to being a, a person made in God's image that crosses across all walks of life. The value is not in many possessions. But there's something else in this one sentence. A person's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. So it's not only your life is more than that, but life isn't even found in that. Like, that's the teaching there. You know, the Bible says where true life is found, but here Jesus says it's not found in what you own. Many of us fall for that, though, right? We're like, this is living. I mean, I'm telling you, I fall for that. This is living. 
there's so many stories I could tell. But I remember the first time, and this is so funny, Chris and I, praise the Lord, started off super poor. Praise God, man. The old joke is it's the best time of your life. <laughs> when you like, you know, no furniture, everything's hand-me-down, you can't afford, you got nothing in the fridge, you know what I mean? But, because it's exciting, right? <laughs> Living that way, you guys remember? But um, there's this reality that um, life is not found uh, in what we possess, that there's no life. I, I remember the very first time this lie came in my heart. I got a new job, and we went into Walmart. Walmart, y'all. And my wife said, can I get this? And I said, honey, you can get anything you want. Because <laughs> we had made it. Because <laughs> I finally had a job where, I, where she could put anything in the cart, and I would have money at the checkout for it, right? But, that, but the danger of that is that's a lie. Because that is not where life is. And that would not be the only instance in my life of that heart condition. Maybe I'm unique in this. Maybe I'm not. But repeatedly, I think, ah, this is it. And then Jesus here says, no, no. Your life is more than this. Life's not found in this. It's not found in what you possess. He says life is found somewhere else. Somewhere else. Where is it? It comes in verse 21. Jesus, after teaching the parable, says this. This is how it will be with anyone, now here's the comparison he makes, who stores up things for himself but is not rich toward God. That's the teaching principle. This is the same story that will be true for anyone who stores up things, stuff, possessions for themselves but is not rich toward God. That's what it looks like. This is is how it will be for fools. Notice, by the way, it says, for anyone, or the word says, whoever. Whoever would store up things for themselves. Here, here's the um, juxtaposition, if you will. Jesus lays out two principles. You can be rich toward God, or you can lay up things for yourself. Now, there's a real fine nuance to make here. We're not mad at stuff. Jesus ain't mad at stuff. He's indifferent about stuff. He's not upset about stuff. It just doesn't matter all that much. He says you need to be rich toward God. That's the overarching principle here, as opposed to storing up things for ourselves. Well, then the question must be asked, how can we become rich toward God instead of storing up things for ourselves? What is the key that unlocks the lock that lets us live a life where we're rich toward God that is somehow demonstrated in this particular area of financing? And I think the answer is one word, generosity. That's what I think it is. I think that the, the fundamental flaw is this man thought, this is all for me. The Bible teaches repeatedly, it's not all for us. It's not all for us. And so I want to talk to you this morning as we close with this kind of idea. I want to talk to you about generosity and why it's a big deal in your life. Um, I have the privilege of doing uh, premarital counseling for many. I've done that for many times. And one of the things we always talk about is we talk about finances. And one component of finances is always talking about generosity right? And I've got to be honest, it's one of my least favorite moments because I'm not saying this as someone who's going, I hope this couple gives to our church. As a matter of fact, because of your generosity, I do all my stuff like that for nothing. Couples get it for free. We give it away, Family Bible Church, because of your generosity. And so there's no fees, there's no, I don't, and I've heard, you know, pastors go, man, I get good money. I don't. <laughs> I'm not proud of that. I'm just saying I don't. But then in this moment, I say generosity is a big deal. 
remember one time I was talking to someone and they said, well, yeah, I know you want me to give the church. I said, no, I don't care who you give it to, just give it away. Because the problem is, for all of us, I would say, generosity is a hard issue. It's not about who's receiving what. It's not about who deserves your stuff. It's about whether or not you want to let go of it, any of it. So I want to talk about some biblical principles on generosity. The first is, there's this thing called a tithe. I just want to explain to you what a tithe is. It's a tenth. It's a biblical principle that you should give away one-tenth of everything you own, that everything you possess, everything that you, uh, the word would be like an increase, right? Now, some of you are astute, and you go, wait, 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 man, that was Old Testament stuff. Yeah, I know. You know when Jesus taught about it? He said, you should maybe give away a tenth of your, your, um, your herbs, uh, but then you neglect uh, justice. Uh, you should do the latter without ignoring the former, right? He's not saying stop. I'm not saying you have to give away 10%. Don't hear me say that. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying that the biblical standard for the beginning of living a generous life is to take one out of every 10 things that you get and you set it aside. I heard a great teaching this week from somebody. They talk about parenting, and they said the main reason they gave their kids an allowance in their house is to teach the kid to take part of the allowance and put it aside and give it away. Because they want to begin that relationship with money with way that's not all for me. That's the goal. Because we're teaching a, a, a lifestyle of generosity. Listen to me. You don't owe anybody 10% of your stuff. This isn't a legal thing. You don't get to go, well, look at how good I'm doing because I'm giving away 10% of my stuff. I want to talk about, I, I love this principle. And not because I'm a pastor. That's not why. I've loved it ever since I heard about it. Uh, for a couple reasons. Um, one is, it's equitable for everybody. I say it all the time to people, if you've got a dollar, it's a dime. If you've got a million, it's whatever the math is in that. 100,000? I don't even know. <laughs> Some of you are like, God, you're bad at math. <laughs> is that true? <laughs> you know, we, we, we're all impressed. Like I told you last week about Bill Gates giving away money, but so what? Right? Um, he, I'm not saying he's not, but it's, it's proportional. Uh, a tithe is proportional. Giving a 10% uh, is a proportional thing. Um, it means that everyone can participate. It means that no one's exempt. And I don't mean exempt in the way that, punitively, I mean exempt in the way that they don't get to participate. That everyone goes, yeah, I can do that. I can share 10% of what I've been given. And by the way, it's not always money. But, but what is it that you could share? You could learn to share. It's a brokenness that we think that everything that we get, we have to retain. One of my favorite things about generosity in general is it's refuting the lie that you have to have everything to make it. You can have the worst job. Let me tell you this. You can have the worst job in the world, making the least money in the world. And if you can take part of your earnings and give it away to a stranger or give it away to an organization, give it away to a church, you can, if you can do that, you're going, I don't even need what I'm getting. It causes you to live a life of abundance. That God has been so faithful to me that I can live on less than what I've got. I've got more than I need. That's the principle. But it's the beginning, and it's not legalistic. Don't hear me say that. It literally means a tenth. It applies to farmers, to bankers, stay-at-home moms, children. It's easy. Easy math. Listen, here's the second, second uh, generosity idea. As a believer in Jesus Christ, this is a different conversation. I challenge everyone to be generous, even non-believers, because I think it's a heart issue. I think it's stuck in their heart, right? I only know because it was stuck in my heart, right? But here's the thing, as a believer, money is only the biggest deal in your life as long as 
the, the Lord Jesus Christ is not. Now, there's a submission principle here. But that's the real danger. The rich man went away sad. Why? Because he had much wealth, and he decided that the wealth was worth more than Jesus. This guy here fails. Why? Because he believes that the abundance is going to be a security, not God, God's self. That the provider is more valuable than the provision. There's a, a, a misunderstanding. And if we think that money is the biggest thing in our lives, we are confessing with our lifestyle that Jesus Christ is not the biggest thing in our lives. But don't hear me say, because I think there's a lot of hypocrisy in the church about this, just give the church your money. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying if there's an issue with money in your heart, it's because Jesus isn't the Lord of your heart. Proportionality, not value, is key. Um, it's not about how much you give. I'm not going to turn there, but you know when Jesus in Luke 21 teaches about, in the, in the temple, he talks about the widow who gave two coins. And you know what he says about it? No one has ever given such an offering. Two coins? There were some rich dudes who gave way more than two coins. He says, because she gave everything she had. Is he saying give everything you have? Not, like, not literally like that, I don't think. But she's willing to give everything she has to honor the Lord. It's all I have, Lord, but you can have it. You think about the story of the loaves and fishes. This is all I have, Lord, but you can have it. That heart, that desire in our lives to be fully submitted unto God is glorifying to him. And listen to me, Jesus loves disciples like that. Seem unfair? He loves it. The word says, here's another uh, key on generosity. God loves a joyful giver, right? And we know this from 2 Corinthians 9, 7. How can you give joyfully? Uh, here's, the, here's the formula. Don't give anything until you decide in your heart what to give. Decide in your heart. Decide what you're going to give. And then once you decide, then give it. And, and don't worry about it, right? It says what? Because God loves a joyful giver. If you decide in your heart beforehand what to do. When that widow went up there, she was like, I'm giving these coins. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. And she got up there and she did it. And the irony is, when Jesus says, there's been no greater faith, that she was full of joy as she gave everything to the Lord. It's crazy. That's how we give joyfully. That's why we, it's, it's never even about, this is so crazy, guys, but it's never about the need. It's never about, is it worthy? It's about us. Can we give joyfully? And then here's the last, I think, biblical principle, or uh, not biblical principle, but uh, key to generosity. And I would call it biblical budgeting. I'm not going to give you a sermon on budgets, believe me. And I didn't believe in budgets. I hated the idea of a budget. It felt like, uh, you know, that, that clothes that your grandma bought you when you were little, you hated, but you had to wear them anyway. That's how budgets felt like to me. But I, I wanted to say biblical budgeting because here's the fundamental question of biblical budgeting. We get stuff, whatever it is, right? You got a job, you got a check. Uh, you got a grandma, you got some money in the mail. You, you, you know, whatever. You, you get an inheritance like this guy. The fundamental biblical is before you do anything with it, before you start to presume to build bigger barns or to do something else, that you take this stuff and you ask the Lord, what would you have me to do? First of all, you go, wow. <laughs> wow. And the second question, what would you have me to do? And then you make a decision before. See, that ties in with 2 Corinthians 9. Decide in your heart beforehand what you will do, and then do it joyfully, right? What would you have me, or 
in the case of married couples, what would you have us do? And then you make a plan and you do it. That's what you're going to do. And by the way, it, I mean, it could be whatever, right? Like God would be like, no, take care of this, take care of that. It's not about being irresponsible, but having a plan for how to do it. Uh, Luke uh, 12, 34, later on, but it's right down below. Jesus teaches this. Wherever your treasure is, that's where your heart will be, right? Wherever your treasure is, that's where your heart will be. He's, it sounds backwards. He says, you're going to invest in what you care in. That's not what he says. He says, you're going to care about what you invest in. The things that you choose as a couple, as a family, as an individual to put your money in, you're going to start caring about a whole bunch. Biblical principle. I had a prophet um, when I was going to school to become a pastor, and he said, um, uh, we were all going into ministry. It was a ministry class, and he did an exercise. I thought it was worth thinking about this morning. I don't know, right? But I thought it was worth thinking about for our lives. He asked us this question, because most of us were broke college students. He said, I want you to spend some time thinking about what is the most money you would ever uh, use, accept and use to live on? What's the number for you that you say, that's enough, that's enough, and you won't live on any more than that? And we're like, well, you know, people are all over the place, right, because it's college students, you know. There were some big numbers in the room. And he, he made a point of this, he said, if you don't decide now, while you're young, what's reasonable, you'll become more and more unreasonable as you live. But you know what he didn't say? What's the most money you'll ever make in a job? That wasn't his challenge. He's not saying cap your salary. He's saying when you get to what's, what's enough, what do you do with the extra? Make a decision now. What, what kind of life are you going to live? Make a decision now because it will matter later. By the way, to give him credit, his name is Joe Columber. And I don't know if he even knows, he, you know, I mean, I'm sure he knew he taught that, but it was such an impact to ask that question. How much is enough? And what is God doing when he blesses us beyond enough? That's the question. There's a, a stern warning that comes in James. I'm just going to read it. I'm not going to talk about it. Um, I'll put it up. It's James 5, 1 and 6. You don't have to turn there. You, just, you can. You don't have to. I'm not going to talk. I'm going to read it. Now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming upon you. Your wealth has rotted. The moss has eaten all of your clothes. Your gold and silver have corroded. And their corrosion is a testimony against you and will, and, and, uh, and will eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in these last days. Look. The wages you failed to pay the workmen who are mowing your fields and crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in great luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourself in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered innocent men who are not opposing you. I hear some stark biblical words about these things. Jesus said, the love of money... Paul said to Timothy, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And I couldn't help but think. You know, last week we read the passage at the communion table where Jesus had the Last Supper, and he said, this is my promise to you. And he poured out his blood, and he offered his body, and the text made it a point to say, and Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed him, was there. It struck me that he betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. There was a math problem for Judas. Who's worth more? 
all I'm saying, church, is don't get the math problem wrong. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much because you have poured out on us abundance in Jesus Christ. That this whole conversation about worldly stuff is so trivial compared to the eternal realities of a relationship with you. And, and not just life in heaven forever in your presence, but, but life now as Lord of our lives, that, that, that there's this adventure way and we can live with you and ask these questions. I pray, Father, a prayer first of repentance uh, for those of us who have been holding on too tightly or who have not even been talking to you about what you'd have us to do with all you've blessed us with. Father, would you forgive that sin? Would you cause us to repent, to, to turn again to you and say, yeah, of course, I am yours and you are mine. Everything that I have, Lord, what would you have me do? Father, for the ways that we'd be able to participate in your kingdom work, the ways that we'd be able to exchange temporal wealth for eternal blessing. We give you thanks and praise. Father, I only pray that you would encourage us in our hearts to become more bold, more believing, more like Jesus, not afraid, but honest. Help us to live a life like that. Be glorified, Father. Teach us right from wrong. Show us how to live in this life. We love you so much. We thank you for salvation. The ultimate, ultimate uh, cost may be glorified as you redeem your people. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.